Today's scripture reading is from Lamentations chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, and verses 9b and 22b. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line. It did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and reared my enemy has destroyed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Even as I listen to that read, uh, I've been spending all week in that passage, and hearing it read out loud is super depressing, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> So last week, if you were with us, we started a series uh, looking at the very difficult book of Lamentations. Uh, Lamentation is, is a book that you, uh, uniquely deals with the problem of suffering. And what we've seen in it so far and what we've just heard read is a reflection on uh, the results of the siege that came against Judah uh, by the Babylonians. And so in many ways, Jerusalem in this passage is dead uh, the temple of God in Jerusalem is dead. The people are dead. And those who survived are now in exile, uh, many of whom feel like they're dead, even in exile. Everything that they were, everything that they believed, everything that they had experienced as this people of God has now seemingly come to death as they're now stuck in captivity, lamenting the end of their great people, of their great nation and as we've said in the past, uh, or last week rather, uh, Lamentations is essentially a funeral dirge. It's a poem or a song describing that what once was is no more. And starting today, we're going to begin looking at the complexity of the situation in Jerusalem. Because though their circumstances are certainly unique and beyond the kinds of things that we maybe have personally experienced, uh, there's a lot that can be learned from this book and from their experiences. And here's why Lamentations is such a difficult book. Is that Israel is in this situation because over time they rejected God's patient call to return to him. And in particular, the lament in chapter 2 shows the extent to which Judah had this pervasive blindness that, caused, uh, that was caused by their assumption that they were this privileged and exceptional people. They believed themselves to be so privileged that they assumed that nothing could touch them. And while we might uh, initially think, again, that Israel's, Israel and Judah's circumstances are unique, there's actually so much to learn from their perceived privilege and from their perceived exceptionalism. And so what I want to do, I want to take a look at that privilege. And I want to take a look at first 
the deception that comes as a result of that privilege. Then I want to look at the reaction that God has against that privilege. And then finally, we're going to take a look at the cure for that privilege. So first, the deception of it. Uh, So by all measure, it did seem as though Judah, before the exile, was experiencing extreme prosperity. Uh, As a result, uh, they often believed that this prosperity that they had was because they were in high favor with God. I mean, look at our passage. Uh, Verse 5 speaks of palaces and strongholds. Verse 6 speaks of festivals. 7 speaks of a sanctuary. Uh, Verse 8 speaks of a wall that's surrounding the city. I mean, it is fair to say that their land was full of silver and gold and treasures and horses and chariots. They had this power and this influence that chapter 1 described uh, they were like queens among the nations, highly regarded amongst other nations. And yet, despite this extreme prosperity and power, they also had perpetuated grave injustices as they'd created these vast unjust systems that took advantage of people. And plus, they had fallen into idolatry by essentially making Yahweh one of their many gods. Isaiah, uh, when looking at the circumstances in Judah, writes a striking summary in in chapter 6 of Isaiah. You can read about this where he describes that they had embraced these pagan customs and that though their land was full of great riches and military might, it was also full of of idols. And on top of that, they had become very arrogant. And they found great pride in their fortified towers and their powerful military and the wealth that they had accumulated. Judah saw its great city and its great wall and its great temple as the mark of their glory. And in their minds, they, this all made them untouchable. And maybe more concerning is they believe that all this power and all this wealth, even though it was the result of injustice and idolatry, they somehow believed that it proved God's favor with them. And as a result, all of this took place as a result of their privilege, of the exceptionalism, and it became incredibly deceptive, which is why prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were constantly coming to the people, trying to get them to turn away from their idolatry and their pride-filled wickedness. Now, as I describe that scenario, uh, we might think of Israel and Judah and think of them as, well, that's terrible. You know, how does the people of God fall into such depravities? And we might assume them to be, we might look down on them assuming that we could never, as a, as a great people, fall into these kinds of things. Yet this sense of privilege and exceptionalism, which produces this idolatrous arrogance, is not and has not only been a problem for the people of God in Judah. It has been a challenge and a problem for the people of God across history. It's a problem even now for God's people in the church. I mean, my goodness, as I, as I look at the scenario of what brought Israel and Judah to this point, I can't help but even see our own, in modern times, American church in these kinds of descriptions. I mean, do we not recognize ourselves in the descriptions of Judah's folly? 
I mean, a wealthy, powerful, unmatched nation who believes itself to be in high favor with God, all while having great pride in our towers and our powerful military and our accumulated wealth. I mean, allow me for a moment just to show you how easy it is to fall into this deception, even as a whole people. I mean, in the United States, we have actual terminology for this way of thinking. We literally call it American American exceptionalism. I mean, it's part of our foreign policy that America literally is better than all other nations. That we genuinely believe as a nation, we are unique among the nations, that we are something that the world has never seen, and we assume ourselves to be more virtuous than all others. The New World Encyclopedia actually has an, an entry on American exceptionalism and defines American exceptionalism as this way, that the United States differs qualitatively from other developed nations because of its national credo, its historical evolution, and its distinct political and religious institutions, and the belief that we are morally superior. And here is where the church, I think, too often has fallen into the same uh, deception that Judah fell into. Because since our founding, we have tied American exceptionalism to being a quote-unquote Christian nation. I mean, since the beginning, the belief has been that we are founded on Christian principles, which in many cases has been true, but it's also blinded us from seeing the grave injustices that have been right in front of us. As an example, the kinds of things that we have mentioned before, but the strength of our nation has been always tied to our economic dominance. And yet when we consider the history of that economic dominance, We ought not to have great pride over what we've accomplished. There should be a level of corporate shame in how we've created this economic dominance. Our nation fundamentally established its stability and wealth and global dominance on the injustices of stolen land from natives, free labor from from those imported from Africa, and consolidated power structures that for generations benefited European Americans, all while assuming ourselves to be a glorious city on the hill for the nations. The irony of all of this is striking. I mean, even in the Declaration of Independence, how does one state that all men are created equal while also being slaveholders and in the same document call natives merciless savages? How does that happen? It happens through deception of privilege and exceptionalism. And when we look at Judah, it can be easy to look down on them as they fall into such things, especially as God's people. However, we ought to not look down on them, but rather it should be a story that is a sober reminder to us that privilege and exceptionalism and arrogance are so easy to fall into even as an entire people. And hope that we can at least acknowledge that there are societal-wide sins that many times we are part of that we don't even realize we as a nation have not been, nor are we currently exceptional in that way. And the sustained belief that we are exceptional is proof that we aren't. However, all that said, in a very meta kind of corporate way, this also happens to us personally as well. This kind of deception is easy to fall into for us individually, 
And it can be very destructive for us personally. I mean, think about the ways that we so often easily sin. So often sin is a form of arrogance. It's a form of exceptionalism, believing ourselves to be those who can uh, understand and know what is right and wrong, even greater than God. I mean, think about things like sexual sin. The Bible prescribes a certain understanding of what sex is and the way it is to be used. And yet, sexual sin is the belief that I have exceptional knowledge for what I ought to do with my body, even more than God may know. Greed is the belief that I have exceptional skills that make my resources mine, and I, have ex- I am exceptional enough to attain those resources in ways that best serve me. Gossip is the belief that I am exceptionally privileged with information, and I will determine how I use that information. Sloth and apathy are the belief that I'm too exceptional to do what I don't want to do. Impatience and anger are the belief that I am too exceptional and too privileged to be bothered with inconvenience. Hypocrisy is the belief that I am so exceptional that I cannot be bothered to do what I demand from you. Self-righteousness is the belief that I am exceptional compared to all others. Self-flagellation is the belief that I am exceptional and therefore should be better than this. It's the exaltation of self, of our desires, of what we want over God, and by definition, that becomes idolatry. And what we see in Lamentations 2 is the extent to which this cannot be the case for us. Because God is no respecter of persons, no respecter of nations who arrogantly believe themselves to be especially uh, exceptional, especially when that exceptionalism causes those nations and those people to reject his lordship over their lives by allowing sin and injustice to continue. And though he is patient, he will react against this kind of idolatry, which, of course, brings us to God's reaction that we see here to this privilege. You know, one of the most jarring aspects of the poem in chapter 2 is the poet's description of who destroys Jerusalem. Now, as we've seen already, we know that Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. They were destroyed. The city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The Babylonians were a brutal uh, conquering people. However, look look at the passage. Look at how the poet notes and describes the conquering. The poet, in verse 5, does not say that Babylon swallowed up Israel. Rather, he says that the Lord swallowed Israel. Verse 6 doesn't say that Babylon laid to waste the Lord's dwelling place in the temple. Rather, it says that God laid to waste this dwelling place, his meeting place, the temple. Verse 7 and 8 doesn't say that Babylon rejected the Lord's altar or abandoned the Lord's sanctuary or tore down the walls of Zion. It says that the Lord rejected his altar, abandoned his sanctuary, and tore down the walls of Zion, of Jerusalem. I mean, the poet recognizes the destruction, though at the hands of the Babylonians, was ultimately the action of Yahweh against his own people. And we're told why. Look at verse 9. It says, because the law was no more. 
Jerusalem was blinded by their privilege and special relationship to God. They believed that their great city and temple would protect them. They believed that God would not judge his chosen people or destroy his own temple. And yet, here we are. Sung Chan Ra, uh, a professor of mine and a mentor in many ways, he puts it this way. He said, every single line of verses 1 through 8 shows God as the actor. The Babylonians are explicitly replaced with God, being the actor of the destruction. Thus, the suffering is obviously not beyond his purview and sovereignty. This is, this is the challenge. The difficult truth that, we, that must be considered is what if God is the source of the suffering? That is a difficult and very disorienting question. And to be honest with you, it is a question that I have consistently pushed against. Because there is suffering, and I want to say this categorically, there is suffering in life that comes solely as the result of living in a broken and fallen world. It is wrong to equate personal suffering simply with personal sin. That is not how this works. God is not a fickle God seeking to punish us, and so we need not fear him in that way. However, we cannot miss that when deception is overtaking his people, he will break through that, dece- or that deception. And when he breaks through that deception, it's going to feel a lot like judgment. Judgment is ultimately God tearing down the idols and taking the glory that they produced away. And we cannot miss that God will not share his throne with anything or anyone at any point. And in love and mercy, he, we, he will dethrone whatever it is that we've exalted. Because he knows if it remains, the consequence of that idolatry will be far worse. It will lead to our ultimate and complete destruction. And here's the, here's the rub, is that idolatry as a concept can be very difficult to name and understand unless we are very intentional in assessing the kinds of things in our lives that we've allowed to be exalted, exalted greater than he. But God desires for us to see those things so that we might take them off that throne so that he does not need to step in and tear it down for us. And I do not believe that ultimately God desires for these kinds of judgments to take place, for he calls us, he's a patient God, calling us to leave those things behind. So to be practical on what it means to assess the idolatry in our hearts. You know, this is, maybe practically speaking, just in that, back to that corporate idea of falling into things as a people. It's a bit of a side note, but I think it's very relevant that this tearing down happens broadly and corporately amongst us. I have to at least note that in this regard, in our na- when our national identity is tied closely to what it means to be a Christian, the idols of the Western church are being ripped away from it. And what have those been over the course of church history? They've been power, they've been influence, and cultural dominance. And all of those idols have refused to die over the years. And as a result, 
globally dominant churches of Europe and the United States are losing their power and their influence and their cultural dominance. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the places where Christianity is exploding are in places where we've arrogant, that places that we have arrogantly viewed as inferior, unprivileged, or unexceptional. That's where God works best. But also on a personal note, idolatry in our lives can be a really hard thing to process, especially for those who do profess God to be God. All right, so for a moment, Christian, I would imagine that you would say, yes, that God is Lord over all things, everything in my life. I mean, what's interesting is Judah had not rejected Yahweh, but they had deceptively allowed other things, other idols, to become important to them. They didn't trust Yahweh as they should. And I think too often, we do the same thing. We acknowledge God to be God, but we allow other idols to creep in. David Paulson, who's a well-known counselor, who's done a lot of work in this area of idolatry, uh, in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, he gives perfect insight uh, into how we come to that place. Uh, and he, he uses, instead of using the term idols, he uses the term functional gods, which I think is appropriate. And this is what he said. In talking to Christians, this is what he says about functional gods. He says, as a Christian... You profess that God controls all things and works everything to his glory and your ultimate well-being. You profess that God is your rock and refuge, a very present help in whatever troubles you face. You profess to worship him, trust him, love him, obey him. But in that moment or hour, day, season of anxiety, you live as if you needed to control all things. You live as if something, money, someone's approval, a successful sermon, your grade on an exam, good health, avoiding conflict, getting your way, matters more than trusting and loving God. You live as if some temporary good feeling could provide you refuge, as if your actions could make the world right. Your functional God competes with your professed God. Now for Judah... Their functional God was their wealth, their power, their prestige. But what in our lives become functional gods? That if taken away, would be incredibly painful and maybe even feel like judgment. You know, in, the, in that same um, work that Paulson did, he had given a way for us, a, a tool, to help process the functional gods that we might have within us. Because for some of us, maybe it's immediately coming to mind. You know it. You know what your functional God might be. <clears throat> for others, maybe you're processing what it could be. But Paulison gives 35 x-ray questions that help assess our functional gods. I'm not going to read all 35 to you. I would re uh, recommend, however, Googling them at some point, uh, and you can read them. They're all worth sitting with. But there are several that I want us to use this morning, several that I want us to process. And as I read these, I'm going to just read them straight through. I would encourage you to just take a moment and trust the Spirit of God to make plain to you what those functional gods might be. What are the idols that maybe have creeped into your life? Hear these questions. What do you love? What do you want 
desire, crave, lust, and wish for? What do you pursue? What do you tend to worry about? What do you think you need? Where do you find safety and comfort? This one's interesting. Whose opinion of you counts? On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile? What would make you feel rich and prosperous? Another interesting one. Who's coming into political power would make everything better? What do you see as your rights? Another interesting thing. What do you pray for? And where do you find your identity? Now, what's interesting about those questions is that some of the answers to those questions very well might be good things. Not everything that you've come up with is a bad thing. But they become functional gods when they become ultimate things to us. And when those functional gods are taken away, it can be terribly painful. However, know that even right now, as they come to mind, the fact that they are coming to mind is God's loving call to you to come back to him. I mean, if you are here and you can't think of anything in your life that you end up using to be greater than God, to find that fulfillment that only God can give, to give the joy that only God can give, to give the stability that only God can give, if you can't think of anything, unless you are Jesus reincarnate, deception has taken over your soul. Because every single one of us has something that we elevate at times to be more important to us than even God himself. And as long as you can think of ways that you have not let God be God in your life, that is still him lovingly calling you back to himself. And as a result of that realization, whatever that thing might be, there's also hope to know that we can find a cure for that deception. There is a cure. Let's look at that briefly. The cure for privilege. You know, as we've said, Judah believed that God would never bring judgment against his people. They believed that they were safe in their idolatry before God. But know this, functional gods, idols, are never safe in the presence of God. There's a a place in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe uh, where Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the great ruler of Narnia, is this great lion. Uh, Susan is surprised and says that she feels rather nervous about meeting a lion. And as a result of this nervousness, she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe. To which Aslan replies, or I'm sorry, Mr. Beaver rather replies this. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's a king. Judah had deceptively believed that God was safe, but they did not believe that he was good. 
They did not believe that God would give them the kingdom and the prosperity and the glory that they desired. And because they did not believe that he was good, and they did not believe that he would keep his promises, they created structures and systems and idols to give them what they wanted because they did not trust him. And you and I, we do the same thing. Our functional gods exist because we do not trust that God will give us what we want or what we desire. But when God's promises, we we don't trust that God's promises will actually happen. And so as a result, we do what we can to achieve those things without him. And ironically, God's judgment on Judah was not the result of him not keeping his promises to them. Rather, the judgment is proof that he will keep his promises to them. And what I mean by that is this. God had promised that there would be covenant curses for wickedness. He is not a safe God to be toyed with because he takes sin seriously. But we should see the hope in that, that since we know that he would keep that promise of covenant curses as a result of breaking the covenant, we should also know that all the other promises that he gives us, he will also keep because he's committed to preserving his people as his own. And how do we know that God is good and he is trustworthy? How can we know? How could Judah have known? I mean, we know this to be true, that God is good and trustworthy, because we know that it's not the end of Judah's story. I mean, by all accounts, this destruction of Jerusalem should be the end. The city, the temple, the might of their nation are all gone. And Judah wrongly believed that the kingdom and its glory, this temple and its beauty, were what made them secure with, as God's people. But it, is not, it was not those things that made them secure. Rather, it was the goodness and the commitment of God to make them secure. For there would one day come one who proves the goodness of God and the commitment that he has to see his promises fulfilled to his people. I mean, if you are here and you are struggling to see God, a God of judgment, as a good God, we have to look at Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus demolishes all the angst of seeing God's people in lamentations judged. In Jesus Christ, we see that God is first not safe, for Jesus goes to the cross in order to ultimately deal with and receive the judgment and wrath of God upon himself. God takes sin so seriously, and the power of sin is so pervasive that it required the death of his son to finally put those functional gods to death. And so he's not safe. He takes it seriously. But in Jesus Christ, we also see that God is good, for he is committed not to destroying his people and rescinding his promises, but rather the Son of God takes the covenant curses of disobedience and idolatry upon himself for us. And as a result of his willingness to do this for us, hear this, there is a kingdom and a city that cannot be destroyed. It is a kingdom that is marked not by our glory, but by his. It is a kingdom that we are welcomed into, not because we are exceptional or privileged, but rather because Jesus is exceptional and privileged as the Son of God. It is a kingdom where we are given exponentially more 
than anything our idols could possibly give. And when we see the Son of God doing this for us, how could we possibly remain arrogant? How could we possibly believe ourselves exceptional? How could we possibly allow other things to sit on the throne of our hearts? In his love and mercy, God will not share his throne, but in that love and mercy, he is patiently calling you to see the work of Jesus, to see how he has committed to you so that you lay down those idols, those functional gods, in return to him. For though he is not safe, he is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hard truths and hard realities to know uh, that you will not share your throne. And there are so many different ways that we try to make you do that by having functional gods in our lives. But God, we also acknowledge that in your great mercy and grace to us, you make clear to those, to those who desire to see where they've allowed functional gods to come, you make clear to us what they are. And I trust that even now your spirit is making plain to us in this room the things that we too often allow to be exalted in our lives. And so God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, do what is necessary to remove those idols that you might alone sit on the throne of our hearts. And Lord, as we now turn to your table, we do acknowledge that this is one of the ways that you seek to weed out in us that which ought not to be there. We acknowledge that at this table we are reminded that you are not safe, but that you are good. We see that fully and completely in the work of Jesus. So would you encourage us as we come to your table to be reminded of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.